Hi, this is Ben Lowell of Back of the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series on heaven with a message titled Ruling and Reigning with Christ. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation 22, verse 5, while we join Dr. Newfeld now. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about politics. Not long ago, comedian Russell Brand made the following statement. I never voted. Like most people, I'm utterly disenchanted with politics. Like most people, I regard politicians as frauds and liars, and the current political system is nothing more than a bureaucratic means of furthering the augmentation and advantages of economic elite. Wow, that's quite a mouthful. Well, whatever you make of that statement, whether it reflects the sad state of politics or the sad state of Russell Brand, I'll leave that up to you to decide. But politics and politicians have been receiving a bad rap for some time now. You can tell it's the case by the words people use. That's politics, when referring to something a person says is never a compliment. You're behaving like a politician means you should be ashamed of yourself. You're being insincere. Well, praise God, we won't have politicians in heaven, right? Well, I think I have some very bad news for you. We've been discussing a great many aspects about heaven, and as surprising as many of them seem, the one I introduce next is the governance of heaven. According to our text, Revelation 22, verse 5, speaking of the age to come, there it says, And the night will be no more. There will be no light for lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Everything seems to be going well until we hear that they will reign forever and ever. We will rule, we'll govern forever. See, what can that possibly mean? Before we answer that, let's consider if this is a solitary text or whether this idea is found in other locations. It may surprise some of my hearers to discover this is a theme that is frequently repeated throughout the New Testament. Since we've already quoted from the book of Revelation, let's see what the rest of Revelation says. In chapter 2, verses 26 to 27, Jesus' message to the church in Thyatira includes these words, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Now, that's a mouthful, but the string of phrases in that verse comes right out of Psalm 2, verses 6 to 9, where the Messiah will be given authority over all the nations and break them with a rod of iron. I think this is most likely a picture of Christ's millennial rule. We might get a picture here of Jesus ruling the nations he defeats at Armageddon. But in Revelation, Jesus promises in his victory over his enemies that his own people will share the responsibility of ruling them with him. Now let's go forward to Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. Here is a word to the church in Laodicea. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Here the reference is not to the Old Testament, but it seems to be a reference to a direct teaching given by Jesus to the Twelve. In Matthew 19, 28 to 29, Jesus taught his disciples, that passage says, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Notice two things. First, Jesus promised the 12 a role of prominence in judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But in Revelation, Jesus opens the privilege of reigning with him to anyone who has conquered. And second, Jesus seems to indicate that anyone who has sacrificed anything for his name and the gospel while here on earth will receive a hundredfold return on that investment in heaven or in the life to come or on the new earth. We will come to the idea of governing over lands a little bit later. Now let's go forward to Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Speaking of Jesus, this text says, You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Again, the idea is that not only are we saved by the blood of Christ, but that Christ bestows on his followers a role in which they govern the earth, the new and renewed earth. Are there passages in Scripture outside of Revelation that speak this way? Yes. As a matter of fact, there are. Paul speaks of it in 2 Timothy 2.12. There he says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Or Romans 8, 16 to 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs or joint heirs with Christ. As one commentator pointed out regarding that verse, the Bible makes plain that everything that belongs to Christ is now given to us, his people, with the exception of his divinity. And that includes his authority to rule. Wow. That's overwhelming. It's clear from the Bible that we will participate in some way in God's governance of the earth, not only of the earth, but over all the works of his hands. And lest we think this is only a promise related to the millennium, as we have seen in Revelation 22, verse 5, speaking of the new heavens and the new earth, our final state says, we shall reign with him forever and ever, meaning a never-ending estate of governing the works of God's hands. But how exactly are we to understand that? Can we get specific? Well, I think we can. Let's consider God's original intent in the creation. In Genesis 1, after God had created the man and the woman, he gives them their very first command. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, that is, have rulership or governance or authority over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. As image bearers of God, the man and woman and their offspring were to fill the earth and rule it, govern it, direct its affairs according to the design of the Creator. Initially, we see the expression of this first in the naming that Adam does of all the creatures. Genesis 2.19 says, Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Now, in the Bible, the act of naming is an act of expressing authority over something or someone. For instance, in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar names Daniel and his three friends, changing their names and giving them Babylonian names. And in doing so, he is expressing authority over them and his ability to direct their lives. And that's what Adam is doing here but he is doing more. Naming involves a level of understanding. 
When we name something, in some sense, it is the beginning of the scientific enterprise. Adam demonstrates that he has the beginning of an understanding of their functions and what it is that these animals actually are. See, isn't it interesting that when Satan comes to tempt the man and the woman, he enters into the garden as a serpent, that is, as a creature that God has made, and that Adam is required to demonstrate his understanding of and his authority over that serpent. Adam is to exercise his God-given mastery and dominance over the serpent, and instead of doing that, he surrenders his authority to him. With that, he becomes not the ruler, but the one who struggles in how to survive. See, the good news expressed in Genesis 3.15 is that God would send a seed of the woman, the man who we know to be the Messiah, Jesus, to crush the head of the serpent and rightfully reclaim all that was lost in the fall. His authority would be that which Adam had lost. And so the command to rule over the works of God's hands is not lost, but has been redeemed by Christ. And according to Romans 5, Jesus is the second Adam, the new federal head of those who reclaimed what Adam had lost. So whatever the Bible means by ruling and reigning with Christ in eternity, it must be related to the original plan given to Adam, rule over the works of God's hands. But still, how do we understand this? Well, it's related to the covenant that God made with Abraham. In Genesis 12, God makes a covenant with one man whom he promises three things. First, he promises to bless him. That would mean that God promises to allow all the resources God has in being God and use them for Abraham's benefit. Well, that in itself would be a mouthful. Second, he promises to make him a great nation more than can be numbered. And third, God promises to give Abraham and his offspring a land flowing with blessings, milk and honey. And of course, in the Old Testament, that's the land of Israel. The descendants of Abraham are called upon to take the land that was promised them, exercise dominion over it by driving pagan worshipers from it, and rule that land as representatives of God. That's the drama of the book of Joshua and of the kingdom of David. And it's the struggle to rule and reign over all that God has promised. And that, my dear brothers and sisters, is what God promises us in eternity. Few series have stimulated as much response from our listeners as Dr. John Newfeld's Heaven series. Offering a biblical perspective on heaven, both our eyes and hearts are open to an amazing picture of what the follower of Jesus has to look forward to. When we last aired this series, we also offered the Heaven Booklet authored by Randy Alcorn. Again, a wonderful overview of the promise of paradise. This booklet was so popular, we were unable to fulfill all the requests. But with the re-airing of the series by Dr. John, we've been able to acquire a very limited number of booklets to give away. So let me encourage you today to call and request your free copy of the booklet, Heaven, by Randy Alcorn, While Quantities Last. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or ask by email at info at backtothebible.ca. There are those of us who have wondered whether ruling with Christ relates to actual real estate. And to some, that sounds crassly commercial, like a land baron grabbing land. 
Well, before we come to that conclusion, let me suggest we reread an often neglected passage from the Old Testament. It comes to us from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 32. Jeremiah has been prophesying that Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Babylonians because of their sins. The 32nd chapter of this book happens during the 10th year of Zedekiah, which would have been less than one year until the Babylonians would destroy Jerusalem. At this time, the Babylonian armies are surrounding the city, and the city is under siege. The future looks grim, even hopeless. Surely death and destruction and the dissolution of the nation lies before them. Now let me read Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 6 and 7. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Now, Anathoth was about five kilometers north of Jerusalem, and no doubt, at the very moment Jeremiah was buying this property, the boots of the Babylonian soldiers might have been standing on the ground he was buying. From the perspective of what was happening, this purchase was ludicrous. In less than a year, and Jeremiah knew that this would happen in less than a year, Judah was taken into exile and the land was deserted. I mean, why buy that which in effect is worthless? It's like the old adage of buying swampland in Florida. But the rest of Jeremiah 32 is an interesting chapter indeed. God reiterates to Jeremiah that his anger is provoked against Jerusalem for their sins. But in the time of the future, Israel will return to their land. And in that time, in verse 44, God says, Fields shall be bought for money, and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin and in the places about Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah. God will restore their fortunes. Nothing has been lost. And in the end, God will redeem. Well, at first reading, one can be excused for thinking that this relates entirely to the return of the exiles and the resettlement of the land under Ezra and Nehemiah. That is, until you read the next chapter of Jeremiah. There God promises that a branch, and we know that to be the Messiah, he will rule in Jerusalem and execute justice, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. The vision of Jeremiah buying a field points to the time when the Messiah will rule over all. That's when men and women will take possession of houses and lands. Do you remember Jesus' parable of the ten minas in Luke 19? There he promises to one who is faithful that in the days when the king receives his kingdom, that the faithful servant will be put in charge over ten cities and to another over five cities. As strange as this language sounds to us, when we think about the new heavens and the new earth as a real physical place with citizens who have real physical bodies that live somewhere, we must think of houses and lands and properties and the administration of such things. I often ask a question to people I teach about heaven by asking, what if Adam and Eve had never sinned? Would we still need laws? Invariably, everyone answers by saying that, no, we wouldn't. But then I challenge that way of thinking. In an unfallen world, would we still need to have laws that tell us on which side of the road we're to drive and how to order society in, in such a way that will be of maximum benefit to all? Here's the problem. When we think about laws in governance, the majority of us think of those laws that are put in place to restrain evil. Now, clearly, those laws will forever be unnecessary in the world to come. 
But in the world that will soon be revealed, laws will be enacted not to restrain evil or as a system of merit to gain favor, but an ordering of a society that maximizes the glory of God and increases the good of all of its citizens. So what does ruling and reigning with Christ look like? If you go back to a verse that is often quoted at Christmas, we will see a little secret. According to Isaiah 9 verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. In other words, as time goes on, the government of Christ is not static, but it increases. Now, does that sound strange? Let me take you to Daniel 7. In verse 21, we're told, The time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Then later in verse 27 of the same chapter, an explanation is given of that picture. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. A picture is now forming. It's this. Jesus progressively expands his government through his people, in which all the dominions are governed and serve and obey Christ through the governance of his people. One more image, and we'll pull it all together. In Revelation 21, John gives us a vision of the holy city, the new Jerusalem that has come down out of heaven to earth. Let me read the entire text from verses 22 to 26. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, now listen to this, will the nations walk, and the kingdoms of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. I hope you get a sense of an earth which is filled with various cultures and various governors or kings who govern the cultures that make up the new heavens and the new earth. They come into the city and bring the best of their culture and lay it in honor of their great King Jesus at his feet. For all they accomplished and did, they did it to honor him. Over time, as their cultures developed, they kept striving for more ways to honor and glorify the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So I see a heaven that has culture and accomplishments and inventions and a splendor unique to groups of people, all to the glory of God. But is that it? Are we only to govern one another? Well, no, I think not. According to Randy Alcorn, commenting on the expansion of the government of the Messiah found in Isaiah 9, verse 7, he says, We are called upon as the saints to expand into previously ungoverned territories. Another is to create new territories. This, he suggests, could be new planets or new realms under Christ's lordship. Now, is that simply fantasy, or is this even a part of what God has prepared? Well, perhaps. But interestingly enough, he's not the only one to think this way. Erwin Lutzer, longtime pastor of the famous Moody Bible Church in Chicago, says, The discovery of the immensity of the universe does not diminish, but actually magnifies man's role in the cosmos. For if Christ is to rule over all things, and we are to reign with him, then we will be ruling over all the galaxies, affirming Christ's lordship over the whole universe. Or listen to Dr. Joseph Dillow, who's professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. 
reflecting on Psalm 8, verse 6, that God has given man dominion over the works of his hands, which in that psalm includes all the work of his fingers, the sun, the moon, and the stars, he says, the future kingdom embraces the entire created order, and that this has been placed in subjection to man. Clearly, Whatever we may think of heaven, please don't think of it as an endless vacation living on the edge of a golf course, sipping fruit drinks and eating caviar for eternity. Think of a physical life with a physical world, with a God of glory we worship, who gives his followers visionary tasks that fill our hearts with joy. You know, I end this section on ruling with Christ with the words of Jesus. Luke 16, verse 10 records Jesus as saying, One who is faithful in little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. I hope you can see how our life on this earth is connected with the life to come. This is but a training ground. This is but the first lessons in our task to trust Christ and redound all glory to Him. And as we learn this lesson well, we are being trained for our role in eternity. Playing harps on a bland, lifeless cloud forever? I think not. Ruling and reigning with Christ for all eternity? Well, I can hardly wait to begin. John, a great message today uh, and an incredible series so far. And we look forward to its conclusion tomorrow with another great message. But for right now, uh, this this opens up uh, a lot of questions and a lot of thinking for me. But really, when we're going to heaven, we're not going there to retire, in essence. God has something special in store for his people. That's one of the reasons why we are learning now to do all things to the glory of God, to be productive for a lifetime, to learn to engage fully in what God wants us to do, to to come to understand our purpose in living. And as we learn that and begin to internalize that, we are already preparing ourselves for what God has for us in the future. So what I like about this, uh, this thing that the Bible teaches is that it connects the life that we have now to the life that is to come. And really, if you think about it, Ben, wasn't that what Jesus taught us? You know, he that is faithful in little will also be faithful in much and so forth. And and that's that to me is so encouraging. It is a great encouragement. Let me ask you a personal question here. What's the one thing, one of the more important things or the more significant things that you're looking forward to most? <laughs> well, I, I you know, I, I sometimes wonder about that. If I can, just veer off a bit. You know, let me take you back to my own dad's death. I mean, uh, a couple of uh, days before he died, he said, you know, I was thinking about building again, and I don't know why I would be thinking about that. And as I thought about that, and I thought, well, perhaps the Lord has for him projects in which he can create and build. And, you know, I, for my part, would love to write things to the glory of God that I've never had a chance to write here. So the, the longing that I have yet to do some of the things like that Uh, I'm hoping will be afforded to me then. What a great thing to look forward to. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Your gifts mean so much. It allows the Bible teaching ministries of Back to the Bible Canada to be heard every day across the country. Bible teaching relevant to the needs of God's people and faithful to His Word. In fact, that's what you're telling us. Joan wrote, we love the way John digs into the scripture, explaining the Bible, what it meant for the day, making it relevant for today, and how it applies to our daily walk with God. 
encouraging words that speak into the ministry's mission. So whether you listen on radio, podcast, audio mail, online, mobile app, or CD, your support makes it possible. Perhaps today you'd consider responding to the importance of Bible teaching by offering a practical gift to support this month. Perhaps a single gift, or become a partner to tell monthly partner. It's easy and secure. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.